Welcome to Love Canberra, a show about love, sex, and relationships here in the heart of the nation. I'm Ivana Ho. I don't think I ever feel comfortable with the whole idea of being recorded or recording things. I was told about Korski Ara a good six months before I met him. The person who brought him to my attention was Korski's sort of landlord housemate. The way he described Korski was that he's a Japanese dude with a very Australian accent and a shock of bright red hair. He mentioned that Korski had travelled around Australia for many years and now he's working on a project called World Photo Day. The part he felt would be of most interest to me, though, was that Korski's Christian, and he doesn't believe in having sex before marriage. When I finally met Korski, one of the first things I learned about him was that, like George from episode 14, Korski's an introvert. And like George, Korski is the kind of introvert who gives the impression of being an extrovert. He achieves that by pushing his personal boundaries and challenging himself to do things he's not comfortable with, such as talking to people. Another thing he's not comfortable with is being recorded or recording himself, which surprised me given he's done plenty of both, with his podcast on travelling Australia and the multitude of video diaries he filmed during that adventure. So there's where we started our conversation, and here he talks about why he makes himself do things he's not comfortable with. I think it just comes down to, for me, forcing myself to do something that I wasn't really super keen about. And a lot of life is is like that. Quite often there's challenges in life where you, you don't want to push forward through your fears or, you know, whatever the challenge is. And... For me, a lot of that is just being in front of people. Um, I'm not a huge fan of being the centre of attention. So even on my Facebook and my Instagram, I post once a month um, with random things, uh, even though I'm doing exciting things every week. So I'd go on an adventure and go hiking or kayaking, and it will be three weeks later that I'll post a photo from that trip. It takes me that long to kind of go, oh, I should probably share this because someone else might enjoy it. Because for me personally, I get enjoyment from capturing it um, or being on the adventure. And um, yeah, my validation doesn't really come from other people. I just do things because I feel like doing it. And yeah, I don't really mind if people think I'm crazy or if people think I'm boring. Um, because I'm I know sure they don't think you're boring. Well, well if, that, that depends on if you... If if I've shared my adventures or not. So if um, there are people that are you know in my world that I've not had conversations with, and they have no idea what I do, or you know they don't know what my my past has been like, or or what I'm what my dreams for the future are, and they just see me as a young person with no direction, just poking along in life. 
whereas behind the scenes it's a whole different picture and um, yeah I've got a whole big idea and big dream that I'm trying to pursue. One of the things I admire about Korski is how much of a self-made person he is. You can really trace his path from starting at zero to being and having something by applying himself. On his blog, he writes about how he quit his job in IT and started working at Ted's cameras. He made that transition not because he had skills in customer service and sales, but because he wanted to learn them. He writes, when you're on commission, you learn quickly how to pitch products to customers. He's since used those skills to sell World Photo Day to potential sponsors. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. Before he got that job in IT, he attended Tuggeranong College, and here's what he had to say about his time there. I barely got through college, so I managed to scrape through um, year 12, um, and, and I started working at an uh, IT startup. Um, and so I was employee number six when I started at this company and I was doing everything, almost everything. And in a startup, you know, you get dumped into doing customer support. Um, in this case, we're doing a lot of web infrastructure. So we got, um, I, I got a lot of roles in, in actually managing and, and deploying technology. And so that was, that was a lot of fun. And I went through that. Um, and when I left four years later, um, I was doing some really cool things, working with multi-million dollars worth of, of technology that young people generally don't get a chance to work with um, so early in their careers, I suppose. So for me, I was 21 years old and, and I was you know, helping deploy um, the beginnings of cloud computing back then. So if it was a lot of fun and you know you were doing some pretty incredible things at the young age that you were, why did you leave? A big part of it was I, I wasn't liking the, the direction that my life was heading. Living in Canberra, growing up in Canberra and living the Canberra kind of lifestyle as a young person, it's generally speaking, it's, you finish school or uni, you get a job and you start working, whether that's in a public service or whatever, and you just work your way through life, you, you get a mortgage, you buy a house, you have children and from what I saw there's a lot of people working in jobs that they, they didn't necessarily enjoy but were you know, sometimes stuck in because they needed to look after their family or support the lifestyle that they've made around the income that they're earning. For individuals in Canberra the, the average wage is quite high um, and so I was you know, getting sucked into that bracket of being a young person earning a lot of money and spending it all and having a lifestyle built around that. Um, and so in building that lifestyle around me, I had a fair bit of debt that I built up in comparison, or not, but in line with my income. So I was earning a certain amount of money and I was, my, my credit card limits were, were kind of matching that. Every time I got a pay rise, my credit card limits increased and I was just spending it. What were you um, buying? What were you spending your money on? Oh, back then, I was 18, 19 years old. It was probably a lot of McDonald's. Um, pizza, just really 
silly things. <laughs> I can't imagine that McDonald's and pizza would lead you to rack up a massive credit card debt. Well, it depends on how hungry you get. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, as a young bloke growing up, you know, in teens, um, eat a lot of food. And so I think, I think it, 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 it I don't know. <laughs> I, I honestly don't know where the money went. And so, for, well, um, I suppose one of the big you know, common saying is is the idea of keeping up with the Joneses, and so I had a I had a nice city car, um, I had a Honda Accord Euro, a fairly new model of of, of a Honda Accord Euro, um, I had a nice big TV, and I had a PlayStation. Back then, it would have been a PlayStation Two or PlayStation Three, and so I had a nice PlayStation. I had a whole stack of DVDs or Blu-ray discs back then, um, but I found that I was working so much to earn money that I never had a chance to enjoy any of the things I was buying um, and I decided that's not what I wanted I'd rather be poor and loving life and doing the things I wanted to do than having a lot of money and building a lifestyle around pretenses of, of what I look like and what people think of me in terms of what I had at that point I, I figured I'm gonna leave Canberra um, and a lot of that was I suppose driven by my faith and what I believe um, and from that point of view, I, I really felt called to, to give up the lifestyle here of um, that revolves around stuff. What's that called? Materialism. Materialism. That's Capitalism. It. Yes, I'm like, I don't need stuff to, to enjoy life and to live. So I got rid of everything that I had. Um, and if it didn't fit in my car, I didn't take it. Um, and I started driving around Australia. Okay. So that's a whole different story. So I read on your blog from, um, I think it was 2009 or something, you and a friend were going to travel around Australia, basically, you know, around the whole way in four months. Did you end up doing that? Um, that was about a, a good mate of mine, Stu Orm, and, and he passed away in a motorcycle accident before we had a chance to go on that trip. Um, and so we had a map out and we we'll, you know, jotting out our trip and, and organising what we we're going to do. And, and um, yeah, a couple of months later, he was, he was in a motorcycle accident on the Cotter. And, um, yeah, we never got to do that, that trip together. So, you know, yeah, I suppose that's sometimes what life throws at you. Um, it's always tough to lose a, a good friend, especially so young, like we were... Um, that was five years ago or so, so we would have been 23, 24 years old. Yeah, to kind of head off at that stage is not what you dream of in life, is it? Like, mm. yeah. So in not getting to make that four-month-long trip with him, did, did that sort of lead you to deciding to embark on a much longer trip by yourself or had the longer trip always been the intention and the four month one was kind of the test run? I've always had a heart of adventure. So going on a trip, that was you know the easiest part of making the decision. Um, heading off with a, a friend, met Nat, we had to organize something that worked for the pair of us. He was still studying and had a job back in Canberra that he had to come back to. Uh, and so we had to work around that. So the time frame that we'd set revolved around, um, you know, some of the 
commitments that were back home here in Canberra. Um, when you're on your own, you, you don't have necessarily have to worry about the commitments of someone else. And so you've got the freedom to do whatever you want. And so, yeah, when I left on my own, I originally thought that I'll be gone for four to six months um, before I'd get bored and come back or, you know, um, I'd run out of things to see or do or run out of money or whatever. But as I continued to travel, more opportunities came up, more things to see popped up. I met more interesting people and I just kept driving. Yeah. And so when I first left, I thought, yeah, I'll be back in four or six months. Uh, and then six years later, I finally got back to Canberra. Korski set off on what would become that six-year trip, travelling around Australia in March 2011. He explained how he chose his first stop. I put up a map of Australia and I closed my eyes and, and done one of those, you know, pin the tail on the donkey kind of things and pointed to a place in northwest New South Wales called Moree. I thought, oh, Moree, never even heard of that place. Let's, let's go there. And um, so I left Canberra with a tank of fuel and $50 and just started driving. And I got, got to this place called Moree and I just had enough fuel to get there. And I poked around there until I got a job. And that's where the adventure started. I, I think I spent a year, if not more, in, in this small country town. And I learned how to be a farmer. <laughs> so coming out of IT, yeah, I got to learn to work the land and become true blue from that point of view. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. And so leaving Canberra with just $50 and um, a fuel tank full of gas or petrol rather, we're in Australia here, aren't we? <laughs> um, was that like the intention? Did you kind of want to have on you as little as possible so that you'd have to, you know, take risks to kind of keep going or...? For me, I didn't really have a choice because I still had a, a huge amount of debt that I'd racked up that I, that I had to pay off. So, um, because I resigned from the job that was servicing my credit cards, I literally didn't have anything in terms of money in the bank to support me. I, you know, all the assets that I got rid of to start travelling went back to paying off some of that debt. Even then, it didn't make much of a dent, and so I literally didn't have anything else to kind of back me up when I left. Um, yeah, that was an interesting part of the journey because I didn't have, yeah, I just didn't have anything. Mm. To either kind of work it out as I went or, I don't know, go hungry. I, I, yeah, I'm glad I didn't have to face the, the opposite of the situation I was in. So um, I count myself incredibly blessed to to have been able to go on this journey and have so much provision along the way and so for me that that's my faith and what I believe that God's provided as I've traveled Um, and so I prayed along the way and people go that's crazy how do you just pray and you know expect God that will provide something for you as you go I'm like oh I, I don't know but when you've got nothing it's a lot easier to believe that there's someone else looking out for you than um, believing in your own strength and, and ability to do anything, yeah. So when you arrived in Mori, what skills did you have that you could offer, you know, the various businesses that, that were there? So I, I, yeah, I, I met a guy at 
uh, yeah, so I figured I'll drop into church because that's a community that I'm, I, I've been used to. And so I dropped into church on a Sunday and I talked to a guy and said, I'm looking for work. And he said, oh, yeah, talk to this guy. And I talked to this, you know, this other guy. And he put me in touch with another guy. And I went through this circle of farmers. And the first thing they asked me was, oh, have you ever worked on a farm before? I'm like, nah, I haven't, mate. And so, have you ever operated a tractor? I'm like, nah. And so the, the core skill set that was required out there in agriculture is the ability to do something on a farm. And I've never done that in my life. My background was in, in IT. It was in computers. Um, and there was one guy that just said, yeah, I'll take you on. And yeah, that, that's where it all started. So I was living out of my car, bathing in a river because you know I couldn't afford to stay anywhere. And this one farmer calls me up and goes, oh, I heard that you're looking for work. And I'm like, yeah, I am. He goes, I don't have any work at the moment, but um, you know, m my wife and I, we're heading to, we're heading to Tasmania. I'm sitting there going, why are you telling me this? Like, what's going on? And um, he continues to, to go on about, you know, how's, you know, what his wife's doing down there. And, you know, typical kind of Aussie farmer kind of talk where they're just rambling on about, you know, life. And it's really refreshing. It's, um, and, as, you know, it's just, a, it's just a story. And at the end of it, he turns around and goes, oh, we're, lo we're looking for someone to look after our dogs and um, our chickens. You know, do you reckon you could do that? I'm like, yeah, sure. I was sitting there thinking, I just met this guy. I've got no idea, you know, like, he's got no idea who I am. Um, I've been in his town for like a week and he's inviting me into his home to look after his dogs and his chickens and, you know, his outline that there's food, you know, in the fridge and um, all this kind of thing. And I'm just like, wow, that's that's really cool. Like, the fact that, yeah, that's that's being provided for me to take you know as, as an opportunity yeah anyway that's that's where the Maury thing started and then how did you find yourself working on a farm and what kind of farm was it oh yeah yeah so i was at this guy's house yeah after he went to tassie with his wife and and his son comes around his son comes around knocks on the door and goes oh dad told me that there's a young dude staying here that that's looking for work and I'm like, oh, that'd be me, I suppose. And and um, he goes, oh, we'll jump in the ute and we'll go out to the farm. And we said, oh, I jumped in this ute and we went driving probably half an hour out of town. It's about 100 k's. Um, 100 k's? No, it can't be 100 k's. 60 k's? Anyway, it was a, yeah. And, and I'm like, well, this is a long way away. Like, as a city kid, like, you know, going up the road, it's like, anyway. So we end up on this farm and... Um, because I didn't know anything, the first job I was given was to sweep out the shed. So I swept out the shed and, you know, just tidied things up. And then, um, then he pulls me up to a giant cotton picking machine. And this thing is humongous and it's probably, you know, probably worth as much as a house. They're, they're expensive machines. Um, and he says, so, so Korski, I need you to take off all these little pieces. And he points to these spindles in the cotton picker and there's probably close to 10,000 of these things in this machine. And basically they spin around in circles and they pull the cotton off the cotton plant. And he set me to work on that. So for like two weeks, I was just taking off 10,000 of these spindles. And that was my, my first job on the farm. Um, 
it seemed really daunting at the time because every single day it was the same thing take these spindles off and then I'd have to dismantle them the spindles had um, three different components once you take them off the machine and so I'd be using a hammer to pull them apart and separate the three different components of, of the spindle um, yeah so I did that for two weeks and I'm like oh my goodness this is like if this is like work it's like just mind-numbing um, but I kept poking along and um, over the years that I was working on farms I went from you know this manual task of, of being a, a shed hand just sweeping the shed out and taking these little components apart to actually um, operating and driving one of those machines um, a few years later so that was pretty cool to kind of transition from just being a guy pulling things apart to a guy actually maintaining and operating uh, you know some of these machines are worth a million dollars. So staying in Moree I think this would be a good time for kind of the show and tell. Um, there's a video that I've taken off your YouTube account and okay. it's from I think about May 2011. Oh that would have been right earlier on when uh, when I was actually creating videos. I was a bit more inspired because because I was just heading off on this journey and I thought I'd better share it with people. Towards the end of the journey, there's a lot less videos because, you know, I kind of disconnected from <laughs> from sharing. I just couldn't care so much. But yeah, let's check out this video. Weeks since my last video update, so I thought I'll, I'll do one now. now. I just find it amazing that this out here is what I call work, you know. I work out here on a farm just outside of Moree and this here is what it looks like at the end of the day. Nice and quiet, there's a tractor going on up there. I'm meant to be working but a few things busted this arvo, so I've just had a cup of tea and I'm just going to find a few things to fix this fuel tank here. If you can see it, needs a new hose on it, so I'm just going to look after that. But this is just incredible, just enjoying what rural Australia is all about. The sun's going down up here, just looks fantastic. And I'm just chilling out, having a fantastic time. This is my work. This is where I actually work. And it's just the most chillaxing experience ever. <laughs> I'm so stoked that this this is what I do, you know? I earn money uh, having a good time. I don't know. Anyway, that's it. You know, leaving Canberra, coming out here and doing a bit of exploring and just having a time to relax out here in the bush is just phenomenal. Anyway, I can ramble on about this forever just because of how enjoyable it is. Not that the rambling part's enjoyable for you. But anyway, that's it for now. I'll catch you guys around. Make sure you check out the website, au360.com.au. I'm doing some cool stuff there. I'm not sure what's happening just yet, but, you know, I'm working on it. It's a work in progress. I'm excited. Video update, over. I'll catch you guys around. Yeah, that definitely brings back some memories. Far out. Yeah, a few years ago now. So you haven't watched that for a good number of years then? No, well, I haven't gone through any of the videos that I created back then. Yeah, it's one of those things that, you know, they'll pop up in times like this. <laughs> People are like, oh, yeah, I watch this video of yours. And I'll be like, uh, which one? <laughs> um, yeah. So what do you think then, um, you know, watching that again? Yeah, yeah, well, it definitely brings back memories of, of how much fun it was out there and how different it was compared to to what we grew up here in in Canberra or in the city um, 
the pace of life is is very different so you work hard but your work life is so integrated into your regular life that you don't really feel like you're going to work every day um, the fact that you know you might be in the shed working on something but you walk home to have lunch and then you walk back out on the farm and you keep working is you know you don't you don't do that here in the city you go to work and you're at work all day and you know, at the end of the day, you come home, you're exhausted, you, you know, whereas out there it was, you, you work really, really hard. You might be working 16 hours a day, but you'd be awake the next day to do the same thing and you wouldn't be complaining about it. Um, you, you go out and you just keep working. It kind of, it's really hard to, to relate to unless, unless you've experienced it. Um, for me, as a someone that enjoys creating things and, and building and fixing things and solving problems, out in the farm every day was like that. Um, fixing the fuel hose on, on a fuel tank, um, finding a way to, to make that happen. You know, sometimes it's, it's as easy as just taking the old hose off and putting the new hose on. Um, other times you've got a similar problem, but the fuel tank is full of fuel and you need a way to to fix it with a full tank of fuel and, and finding a way to, to solve that problem without ending up with fuel everywhere is a really cool challenge to, to deal with in, in, in work life, I suppose. Mm, um, a lot of problem solving. Yeah, yeah. And you get a lot of freedom to think your own way. Um, I found that you know, in, in a lot of the jobs that I've experienced in the city, quite often I've been told what the right way to do something is and it might not necessarily be the the right way if we can put that in um quotes um it's just the way that someone else believes should it should be done um, whereas out out there my main experience was there's a problem it needs to be fixed um, more often than not you don't have someone around to ask how to fix it and so you're forced to think on your feet and to to do what you need to do to keep going. Um, a good example of that, I was out in a farm, it was probably two o'clock in the morning um, and I was harvesting wheat and there was a storm coming in and something broke on, on the machine I was operating. There was no one around, it was two o'clock in the morning. Um, and, you know, for me to, to get a spare part from the shed would have taken me, you know, three hours to walk across the farm. These farms are huge. And so um, I had to walk across the farm, you know, to, to get a, a spare part um, or, or back to the house. Um, or I found a way to, to fix a machine to keep going. And so um, in that instance, I just cut a wire off a, off a fence and used that to you know, create a bit of a solution for the problem I had and kept on working until until the sun came up and the boss rolls up and, you know, his question is, oh, how'd you go? Oh, yeah, yeah, poked on all right. And uh, I say, oh, you have any problems? I said, oh, it's just a small one. And, uh, in reality, the problem was fundamentally huge. The whole machine stopped working, um, but it was fixed with 10 centimetres of, of fencing wire. <laughs> Um, and a pair of pliers um, and to think that yeah you know a, a million dollar machine was pulled up completely um, and could be fixed with a, a solution that cost 50 cents it's a really good thing you had those pair of pliers with you oh yeah totally yeah yeah always have a pair of pliers with you
<laughs> so in the video that we watched, you were wearing um, an Akubra, I think. And so I couldn't quite tell if you'd dyed your hair red at that stage or not. Oh. Um, I mean, it was like May 2011, so. Yeah, so when I first started traveling, my hair was normal black color. Um, and I didn't really feel a need to have it bright red. Um, yeah. So <laughs> why did you dye it? <laughs> oh, good question. Um, yeah, yeah. So w as I traveled more, I found that um, I found it harder to talk to people. Not because as I was traveling more, but because inherently I was really introverted. And so when I first started on my journey, it's like anything that you start off, you know, you, you're excited and you're just more willing to take on challenges and opportunities and, and confront some of your fears. Um, but the more something becomes normal to you, the more you settle back into your default character or your default personality and my default personality is quiet shy behind the scenes not really involved in anything and so when I realized that I was kind of fading back into this default personality of mine which which isn't a bad thing I don't I don't have a problem with being quiet and introverted um, but in the situation that I was in with traveling you don't meet people very well when you're in a corner of a room reading a book all day you really do need to go out and say hello to someone um, and because that's something that that I found challenging from the get-go I suppose um, dyeing my head red was one way to one uh, change my perception of me so the more outrageous you know you feel the more that kind of portrays um, and, and it goes the other way too. When people see that you're different or, or there's something about you that stands out, they're more likely to approach you and say hello or, or whatever, especially when you know, you're hanging around with, um, in communities that are already interested in, in connecting and, and getting to know interesting people. And so, yeah, as travelers, if you're an interesting person, people want to, to get to know you and... and well, that's life in general, you know, if you're an interesting person, people want to hear more about what makes you so interesting, yeah. Mm. So in travelling around Australia, and I'm presuming that you spent a lot of time in um, like small towns, you know, rather than in the major cities, how did people kind of react to you being this like young guy, you know, looking for work in some of these places, staying in some of them for short periods, extended periods, that sort of thing? Most country towns are quite used to having crazy young people poking around, especially during harvest time when when the work level goes up um, because there's a lot of backpackers that are looking for work. Mm, but um, what about Australians, though? I mean, I'd say that that's probably a lot more unusual. Yeah, I suppose so. There's very little discrimination that goes on for hard workers. So if, if you're a solid worker, it doesn't matter what your nationality is. Um, people will just take you on just because you can get stuff done. Um, so, yeah, there, there have been a few experiences where people were surprised that as an Aussie, I was, you know, poking around. Um, but they were mostly for, for jobs that didn't pay much, for example. So fruit picking is a really hard job um, where you get paid 
very little money overall especially in the beginning when you're just trying to work out the process of how to best pick fruit so for the first week or two you might be earning i don't know three dollars an hour while you work out how to you know pick fruit or whatever you're doing um after that you start getting faster and faster and faster and and your wage goes up you can earn you know 50 bucks an hour if if you get fast enough um yeah so when i started working in those kinds of jobs people would just assume that i'm an asian um um and well so, you are asian oh, yeah <laughs> i look asian that's for sure um so people would would talk to me as if i didn't understand english um slowly and deliberately um, and they'd get really thrown out when they actually gave me a chance to to talk. And they'd be like, "Oh, what? You're Australian?" And I'll be like, "Yeah, because I've been speaking to you really slowly for like the last ten minutes. I know. <laughs> I feel really stupid now. I'm like, you should. <laughs> so, yeah, that's always been good fun mm. to kind of yeah." And did people think that, you know, you're a very unusual kind of um, Asian-Australian because, you know, you've got this bright red hair and you seem outgoing at least and I guess you speak in a very, you know, ochre accent. Um, yeah, did people remark to you that, you know, they thought that was all kind of a bit unusual? Uh, I get more of that in Canberra than I did out in the country. I suppose out in the country... It's relatively, oh, it's not normal. Um, but having a strong Australian accent out in the country, that's a normal thing. Um, and I suppose the, the longer that you're out there, the more ingrained that, that becomes. Having bright red hair was no, like was a novelty kind of thing. So people were like, oh, yeah, look at this guy, you know, he's, uh, he's a bit outrageous. Um, yeah, but it was a great way to, to get conversations going which is what 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 I was aiming for so um, in terms of getting work or um, being recognized yeah it was a really good way to be become known somewhere especially in a, in smaller communities where everyone knows everyone um, if you're looking for work and you're the only Asian guy with red hair you suddenly become you know a highlight in that community and people when people talk about you um, if you've got a, a good reputation standing behind you, then everyone knows who you are and what you're capable of and, and they're more than willing to, to accommodate you or find, find work for you or whatever the case might be. Um, and so, yeah, from that experience, I've, I've had my recommendations of my ability to work passed on word of mouth from where I started in Maury all the way through to Tasmania and over to Perth as well. So yeah to, to have your reputation as as a solid farm hand um, traverse across the country to Perth that's that's phenomenal <laughs> yeah when you first set out you said that you were kind of expecting to be away for maybe six months or so why do you think you know, you ended up staying out for as long as you did and probably more importantly, why did you decide to come back? Like, you know, why did it feel right to return home? So when I left, I never really had a plan of what, I suppose even now I don't really have a plan of, you know, when 
when I'm going to do the next thing. It's just I'm just going to keep doing what I'm doing because I enjoy doing what I'm doing. And so, yeah, when I left to go around Australia and go on that adventure, I, I left with the premise of I'm just going to, you know, keep going until something else happens. Um, yeah, that's exactly what happened over you know six years i i just kept on traveling and traveling and traveling and seeing things and meeting people and working and whatever and you know one big thing that i had on my heart was to get to perth so i kept on going until i got to perth and once i got to perth um i was like oh well i kind of feel like i just achieved what i wanted to achieve and so um let's find something else to do and that was when i came back to canberra um to find out what i can do here so a big passion in, in my life is inspiring people to to become amazing at whatever they choose to do. Um, and so coming back to Canberra, a big part of that was um, to, to be involved in a Christian conference where they equip young people to, to make a positive impact on the world. Um, rather than talking about doing good things, actually going out and, and doing them. Um, I had a real privilege of being able to have a real conversations with young people and, and to inspire them on heading on their own journey, um, whether that's across Australia or across the world, but to pursue a path that's not dictated by what the world tells them they need to do. Yeah, but to pursue a path that fulfills them and the purpose that they have for their life um, whatever that is for them yeah so you moved back to Canberra just over a year ago and uh, you mentioned about the Christian conference and then I guess at some point after that you decided to sort of double down on taking World Photo Day to the next level yeah so I suppose for me that was just a, a logical next step you know what what can I do with what I have um, I have this crazy thing that I've been working on for a few years how can I turn that into something that will pay me a wage um, and so that's yeah that's kind of the direction I started heading in uh, when I first came back to Canberra I found it really hard to find work it's yeah I just don't have any I suppose qualifications that fit me into city work um, and you didn't want to return back into IT? Oh, well, even in the IT world, uh, it's so competitive to, to get into the workforce. Um, there's so many people that have come into the space that, in terms of on paper, are, are, are very well qualified for the roles. And because our recruiting system relies so much on, on paper-based qualifications, I don't have any paper-based qualifications. And so I was automatically dismissed from the recruitment process regardless of how skilled I was in, in actually, you know, achieving those goals. And so I applied for a role as a, a network administrator at a school and they turned me down for that position saying that they found someone more qualified. And I kind of looked at that and thought it was, you know, pretty hilarious considering my experience background and um, the fact that as, as a good example, the infrastructure that World Photo Day runs on is more complicated than anything that any school will ever, ever run. Um, we're trying to develop infrastructure that's scalable and reaches five million people. 
to think that I'm not qualified to run a school network as an assistant in my head didn't make any sense um, but I don't have anything to say that I can do that even though practically that's the kind of infrastructure that you know we're running for World Photo Day. Mm. So you mean then um, that kind of becoming the entrepreneur that you are at the moment that sort of wasn't like the first goal it was more you tried a few other things and those other things didn't seem like possibilities and so you had to come up with another option for yourself? I don't really think through things in much detail. So I kind of feel like it would have been along the lines of, oh yeah, I applied for this job, didn't work out, let's do something else. And that's just kind of what happened. Uh, I'm like, uh, yeah, so I don't really uh, think through things very thoroughly unless I have to and so I find that if I think about things too hard I realise how hard it's going to be and stop doing it um, and so you know yeah so in this case it's like thinking through the idea of running a worldwide photo event if I think about that too much I'm never going to do it because it's it's basically an impossible thing to do when you're s sitting in a room on your own um, I think it was yeah I think I came back to Canberra um, I knew so you know that the date that I came back to Canberra was tied in with with this conference that um, I was I was helping out at um, and running a seminar at and so that that tied into you know me coming back to Canberra I got back to Canberra I went through that um, I went to a few weddings and, and yeah, and then I went to the conference and whatever and um at that time I was like, Yeah, okay, let's I'm back in Canberra, let's do stuff. I was still working on World Photo Day, I was putting more time into World Photo Day. And I think I was finding I think I was trying to find a part time job so I can work on World Photo Day and work part time. Um and so that didn't really work out. And then I was discovering so I did get a part-time job. Um, what was I doing? I was cleaning the city. I was like a s street cleaner, like running a scrubby machine. And that was really good fun, just poking around at like three o'clock in the morning, just, you know, like cleaning the footpaths. And that's, um, yeah, that was a really humbling kind of experience. Uh, every morning you'd go out before anyone else is awake and you'd be s cleaning the streets of, of the city. Um, and then you know when everyone started coming in on the on the buses and stuff, you'd you'd stop working and and for me, I'd I'd um, start working on World Photo Day, for example. Um, and yeah, that'd be my day. And then the next day, I'll be back in the city scrubbing s the streets for a bit, and then working on World Photo Day for a bit. And then after doing that for a while, I thought, ah. Oh, this is crazy. I'm spending more and more time trying to organise World Photo Day. I should just try and turn that into a job. So that was a bit of a, I don't know, long story short. It just kind of transformed as I got more confident in my ability to be able to do something. So you went all in and um, 
you have recently, I think, received some grant funding, which I think you mentioned to me when we last caught up, that you've used to bring in an events coordinator, but you yourself aren't deriving an income from from your initiative as yet. So how are you supporting yourself? Yeah, so um, good question. Uh, I sold all my camera gear to, to be able to support myself financially while World Photo Day kind of gets off the ground from a monetary point of view. Um, when it came to running our camera-based event, one of the biggest risks that we needed to, to clear up was the ability to actually organise it. And my skill set isn't in detail-based organisation and planning. I'm very good at just randomly coming out with weird and crazy ideas. But putting it on paper and making sure that, you know, all the things are kind of checked off, not my world. And so, um, yeah, making sure that we could lock that in as... Um, or, or to reduce the risk in that as a as a problem was huge, um, and so it made sense to make sure that that was the first thing that we covered the bases on. Um, yeah, as long as I can eat enough to survive, I'll work it out for the time being. Mm. I'm guessing though that you've had to stretch um, that money out pretty thin, though. Yeah, yeah. Well, I suppose you can find. You know, a lot of ways to make money work. We call me, well, they refer to me as, as Daddy, to, to James. Stay for ridiculously cheap rent um, and things like that. So, you know, having friends that are supportive from that point of view um, to, you know, to create opportunity by giving up a room for, for cheaper than market rate for rent is is really yeah um, being super helpful in in being able to pursue some of my crazy ideas mm. so you've received um, help from some friends and I presume that you've also had to ask people for help as well I mean as an entrepreneur as you were alluding to before you know you, you don't necessarily have the skills to do everything that's required um, how has it been for you to accept help and to have to ask for help? I suppose just like most, like many people, asking for help is, is really hard. Um, you know, we, we get brought up in a world where asking for help is something that is looked down on um, and something that we're taught is, is shameful. And so um, to turn around and, and go, oh, hold up a second, I actually need help. I don't know what I'm doing. Um, was definitely a hard thing um, but then you start to realize uh, you know when you start heading down that path you're not necessarily well you're not asking for help without any effort you know you're asking for help to complement what you're already doing and that makes a huge huge difference and the more that I've gone and approached people with some of it's really basic like I need help organizing an event you know, um, I need some advice on what product I need to use to achieve a certain goal or, you know, I need advice on, on business or whatever the case. Um, yeah, I found that the more that I've asked people, the more that people have been willing to, to help out. 
especially as they've seen what's happening with the help that they're they're giving um, over the last couple of months we've been able to develop something that is inspiring other people to contribute and to be involved in and to share their skills in um, whereas previously when I wasn't approaching people for advice or for help or for opportunities yeah none of that excitement existed it was me really excited about things but the community wasn't engaged in that at all um, I suppose yeah another way to put it is not necessarily it's not asking for help it's just engaging with people and involving people in the process of, of creating something mm. I suppose it helps as well that you know, people can see how hard you're working and how much you've invested in this as well. Um, I mean, you work sort of longer than 12-hour days. Yeah, but that's not what people see. Okay. People people don't see that, that side of... And people don't care. This is what it comes down to in anything in life, really. People don't care about how much effort you put into something. They just care about the, the output. Um, and that's that's the hard truth of the world that we live in. So you don't you you'll never get thanked for for how much effort you put into something. You know, um, generally speaking, this is a very big stereotype, and I'm really keen to be a part of changing that as as a stereotype. Um, but you know, it, it's in all of our workplaces, you're rewarded on your output. Um, you get bonuses based on not on how much effort you put in. You get bonuses on well or what your your results are. Um, so you can put in 14 hours in a day, but if you sell nothing, well, you're not going to be getting um, a, a bonus a, at all. Um, I find that, yeah, that's just the way it is. I, I'll work 14 hours. People in this space see me working hard, and they know I work hard. Um, but when I go up to a partner and say, hey, we're looking for a partner to contribute to World Photo Day, they don't care about how much work we're putting in, um, either myself or the team. Um, what they care about is how many people their financial or product contribution will reach for their brand. It's just the way the world works. Yeah. So people these days are taking photos every day using their phones largely. So what was the purpose that you saw World Photo Day as serving? Yeah, so one of the big things about World Photo Day is community building. So we want to connect communities all around the world in, in the ability that we have to share stories um, and to help people take better photos um, so they can they can present their stories even better um, and we also want to be able to to document the stories that people are telling so in Canberra for example where we're running our first World Photo Day event we want to create a photo book that encompasses the Canberra community in 2017 and some of the things that you know we find as important in our life at the moment whether that's our family or all the places that we work or you know or the community that we live in um, we want to be able to to create something that encompasses our city from a community level um, 
a lot of communities you know are represented with a a corporate kind of makeover of, of what they stand for and that's what's presented to the outside world um, so we want to kind of change that a little bit and say hey no let's get the community to tell our story and why this place is great a bottom-up approach yeah that's yeah. right yeah mm-hmm. it's funny that you keep using the word we <laughs> you know because like you were the founder of World Photo Day and um, then there just came a point where I guess more people were brought on board and now you've kind of expanded that into like a collective of people. Yeah. um, Yeah. No, it's, it's, yeah, it's definitely never just been me, me on my own. There's, you know, from the day that I founded World Photo Day, there's always been someone in, in my world that's been supporting me of, of, of doing that, whether it's my parents um, you know, being encouraging or, or friends and family, you know, or, yeah, friends doing really simple things in, in helping me survive, I suppose, in, in achieving some of those goals or, or giving insight or support in whatever way. Um, a common theme in, in entrepreneurship is very much around the ability of an individual to do something. Um, but I firmly believe that it's never about the individual. It's always about the people that you can activate and that you can, I suppose, inspire to pursue uh, a greater, bigger goal. Um, and for me, that's, you know, I'm, I'm hoping to, to create really positive change through that um, in the world. So, yeah, it's never been about me. It's never been I, um, because there's, a lot of other people that's always been a part of that story. Mm. Okay. <laughs> Nevertheless, you founded World Photo Day when you were 22. And um, what I'm curious about is how does someone just sort of create a worldwide day? Like, does it have to be approved by a particular person or by a com- committee or something like that? You know, I, I really don't know. So I've never had anything approved. <laughs> I just made it up and started building it. Um, yeah, I actually don't know if there's a process to making a day. I probably should check up on that. <laughs> but, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> so what's your ultimate ambition in relation to World Photo Day? I think that continues to change every day it's really fascinating um because the more the more people that you talk to the more people that get involved the more opportunities that open up and so we're getting you know so many different skill sets that expands our ability to do so many incredible different things um if you ask me even three months ago um what were you planning on doing for world photo day my answer would have been we're running a worldwide photo competition. And in three months, that's changed from we're running a worldwide photo competition to we're running a worldwide photo competition and running a series of events in Canberra. Um, yeah. Uh, and, and so from, yeah, from that to go and look in the future, it's kind of like, oh, yeah, well, originally we were thinking about running like a really big photo competition all around the world. And that's now evolved into, oh yeah, we're gonna run a touring exhibition from like around 
every continent. Um, we we love to run cross-cultural exhibitions between Australia and Japan. Um, we love to engage more with um, with New Zealand and to see more of New Zealand showcased in Australia and more of Australia showcased in New Zealand. That would not have been anything on the radar until we were able to just make a start on on a small event in Canberra. And even our event in Canberra, you know, we've got goals to reach 250,000 people, which is which is huge for a relatively inexperienced team of young people just incredibly passionate about doing something amazing. And for me, I think it's just it's it's proof that it's, it's not about what you your you know your history says you've done um you know I, I don't think i've ever looked through a resume that's been given to me for the team that that's on board at the moment it's all just been oh yeah let's let's catch up and have a coffee and and you can tell me about what you love to do in life and out of that we've we've hired a team that is doing some really cool things mm. um yeah it's always got to do with what you want to be or who you, who you want to yeah I don't know what you want to do in life and how being involved in World Photo Day can help you propel you towards your personal goals and dreams in life. I asked Korski what gives him the confidence and strength to pursue these ambitions of his. I had a particular answer in mind, which you'll hear shortly, but instead, Korski responded with how he doesn't get hung up on the challenges and just works on what he can. He also added, I think the, like, the core of me not really doing it for myself or doing it for others, it's just something to do because I enjoy doing it, means that I don't really have any huge weight or expectations that stop me from doing it. Once I stopped caring about whether I fail or whatever, it suddenly became a lot easier. Does that kind of, I don't know if that answers the question. Mm. Yeah, it does. I mean, I guess I'd also kind of um, half expected you to say, you know, like your faith and your belief kind of also drives you. Yeah, I think my faith helps me to know that my my achievements don't really mean anything um it's never me that does things so under yeah understanding that whatever happens it's not just me um from one point of view i know that god's got things under control that no matter what happens whether i screw this all up at the end of the day, yeah, it's going to be a, a blow to my, you know, self-confidence or to my reputation or, or whatever. But fundamentally, it doesn't really change who I am or what I'm capable of doing or who I could be. Because um, my identity isn't tied up in what World Photo Day is. My identity isn't tied up in what people think of me. My identity is tied up in the character of Christ. So if I believe that who I am isn't directly related to the opinions of others but more so to the goodwill of of God then 
at the end of the day, I just keep doing good things and hopefully that, yeah, ends up being positive. Korski wasn't raised Christian. His parents are both Buddhist. Instead, it was some stoner friends of his who took him to church for the first time when he was in year six. That was good times. Uh, not that I was stoned, um, but yeah, some stoner mates invited me to church and they said, oh, you should come along. What? Well, why would I go to church? Like, that's just a bit weird. And at that stage, I, I had something against God because, like, I went to a public school, but they had like religion in schools. And so these dudes from church will rock up and they'll talk about the Bible and, and stuff. And one day this priest dude comes along and, you know, he's talking about this book. And he's like, this book has like the meaning of everyone's names. And I'm like, oh, sweet. I get to suss out what my name means. And so I lined up and I got to the front of the line and oh my goes, what's your name? I'm like, Korski. And he says to me, you're not in the book. And I was like, what? No way, I'm not in God's book. That's freaking lame. <laughs> and so, yes, like that, this was like year four. And um, I was like, oh, God doesn't like me. I'm not even, my name isn't even in his thing. Like, no, screw God. Um, but yeah, then all that changed, you know, a couple of years later. Um, yeah, I moved school and, um, you know, yeah, I, I was just going through a hard time as a kid. Or I, I, all my kind of, you know, friends that I had previously, you know, when I moved school, they all changed. And um, I lived in Red Hill, uh, where our school was in a very affluent suburb, and so we often had um, kids of um, diplomatic families in our public school. So yeah, to go from that environment to go to the other side of town where that affluence wasn't there, it was just regular, you know, middle income kind of families. I'd never seen people smoking pot. I've never seen kids smoking cigarettes. It just didn't happen in, in Red Hill. And so suddenly to be in there, I was like, oh man, I don't fit in. Um, and I was treated like I didn't fit in. And so when I went to church, Suddenly, I was welcomed in by a bunch of people that didn't really know me and thought, oh, yeah, this is cool. People are friendly to me. So your stoner friends took you to church and you felt quite welcome there and all that sort of thing. At what point, though, did you start to believe? Oh. Yeah, so that was, yeah, in year six. And... I suppose one of the big questions we ask in life is where where do we go when we die? Like, where did the world come from? And and for me, one of the big things was I didn't like the idea that we came from nothing and that we go back to nothing. If we came from nothing, go back to nothing, it means that our lives, what we're living for right now, is completely and utterly meaningless. Um, no matter how much positive change that you make, no matter what good you do, um, there is no reason to have hope and there is no reason for there to be value in what you do because 
ultimately none of this will be existing in the future we just go back to nothing and i found that really hard to believe the idea that everything i do now is complete and utter waste um and so one thing that really kind of stood out to me was the idea that we are living for something that you know that um we are living with a purpose we've been given a purpose by god to to do things on this earth and that at the end of it we end up somewhere where we continue as you know in a spirit form whatever you want to call it um to to live on doing whatever you live on doing when you go to heaven I, i've got no idea i've never been there <laughs> but um that made m more sense to me than the idea that yeah you're going to live 80 years on earth and you, you you can you know you can do a whole bunch of stuff uh you can do some really cool things but at the end of it you know what it's meaningless you've done everything but you know you're going to go back to dust and the people that you've done good things for they're going to go to dust and the people that you cared about and the people that cared about you they they're gone i'm like <laughs> that just sounds really lame were you thinking these things in year six i mean how old would you have been in year six the same age as anyone else in year six i suppose <laughs> that's um, a good dodge <laughs> <laughs> uh yeah so yeah everyone was in the same age <laughs> i've got no idea um so i mean was it the case that you went to church that first time you kept going for particular reasons because you know the people were nice and you felt like you belonged and then the faith part came a little bit later when you started thinking about these deeper questions yeah well i think it came like it all came together relatively quickly it wasn't like three years later i was like oh yeah yeah let's uh let's think about these deep and meaningful things I've always been quite inquisitive in just doing things and so when I started going to, to church and learning about the Bible, yeah, I was just genuinely keen to find out what the heck the Bible was about and who this Jesus character was and you know, I think fundamentally whether you believe in um, whether you believe in the in the story of Jesus dying on the cross and the whole spiritual resurrection kind of all that crazy miracle stuff whether you believe in that or not uh, there's a lot of really positive things that jesus taught you know but when when jesus rocked up his core kind of story was to overcome all the bad negative stuff that was happening previously um, and to create a new standard i suppose of what it would be to represent the church and so i think there's there's a lot of solid moral grounding in that that helped me to get a bit of grounding in in the way i live my life yeah i don't know i'd like to think that heading to church kind of stopped me from going out and doing too many stupid crazy things but who knows Maybe I'd just be the same person if I didn't go to church. I don't know. So your parents are kind of nominally Buddhist, I think yeah. is how you were, you know, you didn't use those words, but, you know, 
that was kind of the way that you were describing them. What did they think when you started going to church and you started to talk about Jesus Christ? Yeah, my parents are pretty chill. They, you know, as long as I'm having a good time and, um, you know, I'm on the right track, they're like any other parent. You know, they just want me to be living life as best as I can. And so when I started going to church, as soon as they worked out that, you know, it wasn't a cult, they didn't mind. <laughs> yeah. um, if I had joined something that was, you know, a bit, on the weird side, I'm sure they would have had a different thing to say, but they could see that it was having a positive influence on my life and that, you know, I wasn't going off on tangents of, I don't know what cults have, but <laughs> I'm sure they have some weird tangents. Um, yeah, so they were pretty easy going about it. Did you go through any phases of trying to also bring your parents and your sister along into believing the things that you do? Um, not so much bring them along to, to believe in the same things that I do, but definitely inviting them along to do things that I enjoy doing. And so similar to, you know, inviting friends to come hiking with me. For me, church is something I enjoy and that I think is, is valuable in my life. And so I don't have a problem inviting people along. And just like inviting someone rock climbing or hiking, um, you're more than willing to say it's not my thing. Um, for for hiking, your thing might be, you know, it's like, oh, I, I'm not fit enough. You know, it's like I can't go on a 30K hike. Oh, yeah, no worries. With church, it's, oh, you know, I'm just not interested in, in Christianity. Well, oh, that's fine. Um, my sister came along to, to church you know, every now and again. And she still does when I invite her along. She enjoys that. My parents don't think my parents have come to church with me. But yeah, I haven't really invited them along because they're generally flat out and not, not even in Australia quite regularly. So yeah, you know, it's, it's part of my everyday life. And so I just treat it like any other part of my life. Do you think that you have a particular connection with people who um, also have faith and also believe in Jesus that's different from the kind of connection that you might have with people who don't believe? Oh, wow, that's a crazy question. Don't think so. I just treat everyone the same. Well, I try to treat everyone the same. Like, it, just because someone has the same interests or same belief, like, there's nothing that really makes you any more connected than... I suppose having the same interest means that it's easier to start a conversation because you've already got something that you know, a mutual interest that connects you guys. So you can start a conversation a lot easier. But you can do the same about any topic. Is that what you're going down the track of? I don't know. Well, I don't know. I mean, I just think that, like, faith is, like, there are some pretty fundamental values and very core beliefs that go to, you know, really 
big ideas and I guess I would have thought that if you know there are people a community of people who hold these same values and big ideas and beliefs as you do then you might connect with them on a level that you might not with people who don't you know hold those same values and ideas yeah okay I suppose it's less about the ideas and more about the community that you've built around those ideas and so if if you've got a community that is built around you know let's care for each other let's look out for each other let's support each other let's build each other up you become a, a basically a family um like a village mentality where everyone comes together and everyone's involved in everyone else's life in a positive way and so you know they say that you know it, it takes a village to to raise a child for example and in the church that i'm involved in there's all these little kids running around and everyone is involved in making sure they stay out of trouble uh, making sure that you know they are encouraged and making sure that they are noticed when when they do something and so suddenly you've got an entire community that's pouring out in, into these young children to become adults later on um, and hopefully having a positive influence on on them growing up um, yeah so I suppose when you have that kind of community it, it doesn't really matter what brings you together it could be a could be a rock climbing group that brings you together you know if you've got the I suppose a community vibe then suddenly it becomes you just become naturally closer because you care for each other. The person who brought Korski to my attention had been right. I was most interested in how he was saving himself for marriage. When I looked into this further, I found a blog post Korski had written on the subject, and unfortunately for the podcast, Korski didn't seem to have particularly hardline views on it. However, he said that what's made it easy for him to preserve his virginity is that he doesn't really talk to people. He's not dated very much, and he's only had one girlfriend. But also, he's just never felt that having a romantic relationship was essential to his happiness. We used his blog post, which he wrote a year or so into his travels, as a starting point for our discussion. So one of the things that I wrote was along the lines of not sleeping around. So when I started traveling, you know, it becomes so easy to start having a good time um, in terms of one night stands, whatever, just party on, party hard. Um, yeah, I suppose my values were, I didn't want to do that. I, I actually just wanted to meet someone nice and normal and, you know, someone that I actually cared about rather than, you know, it's like, oh yeah, I've got to be, you know, keep pure because the Bible says I need a safe sex till marriage. It was just, I just want to meet someone that I really care about before, you know, I head down that path. Yeah. So do you place a value on purity and on sex? 
Um, I suppose, you know, like the older you get without managing to get laid, um, the more value that you just put on it by default. Um, whether you're faith-driven or not, I think you get to a certain point. Um, it's like, heck, I've gotten this far. Why not? Like, <laughs> um, Or, you know, the other thing is, you know, I've gotten this far and, and it really... I really do want to find someone that that I want to spend the rest of my life with. Um, Mm. So you don't think that sex will have built up to be like this huge thing and it'll be like totally intimidating to finally get to it and and do it? Oh, no. I don't think I just, I just don't don't think I care. I don't think I care about it enough to be like, oh man, is it going to be? Yeah, no, I haven't got. If I think about it now, it's kind of just like, oh yeah, it'll be great when it happens, whatever. Um, you hear other people kind of explain what it's like having sex for the first time or whatever. It's like, yep, it's really crap. You know, it's messy and you don't know what's going on. I'm like, oh, good to know. All right. <laughs> like, after hearing that, I'm like, oh man, this is going to be lame. <laughs> first time is just going to be like the shamoz, who knows what's going to happen. Yeah, Mm. whatever. I'll deal with that when it happens. Mm. Something that I thought was um, interesting when I was talking to you and, you know, you did also express it in your blog post, is that you're not, like, totally radical about the idea of um, no sex before marriage. Yeah, a big point that I was making in that kind of vibe, I suppose, is at that point when I wrote the article, I was seeing a lot of, things pop up on Facebook almost condemning people that haven't you know upheld that value and I'm like well that's a bit stupid in the words of the Bible you know it makes it very clear that everyone screwed up somewhere and and that you know based on that you can't really be pointing fingers at people um, for being a screw-up because they go hold up a second you've probably done something wrong somewhere too and so for me, that was, you know, especially in that age bracket that I was in, I would have been 23 or something, 24 years old. And a lot of my Christian friends were just going out, you know, partying hard, having a good time and sleeping around and whatever. And for them, you know, a lot of them were feeling guilt and, and feeling like they don't belong in the church, that um, the church is judging them and when I say the church is judging them, the church is made up by people. And so if someone say, oh, I feel judged by the church, it means that they've been judged by me as part of that group. And I'm like, that's that's not right. You know, I'm not judging you for the fact that you've had sex before marriage is, for me, doesn't really, I'm not going to judge you over that. You do, you know, whatever, and you can deal with whatever the consequences of that might be. Um, so I suppose what I was writing there was kind of pitching to those guys and say, hey, you screwed up. Or, well, not that they necessarily screwed up, but, you know, they didn't meet their own goals or their own expectations or, or the values that they were upholding. Um, and that's fine. God will always come around and give you a second chance um and so that was i suppose my big point god's in the business of forgiveness you know 
that's the reason why Jesus came and done his thing. Like, yeah. Otherwise, there's no no point of that, you know, whole story of Jesus dying on the cross. So your first and your only girlfriend, um, you were in that relationship when you were 21? Yeah, that sounds about right. Mm. Yeah. So that was like almost eight years ago? Yeah, that was a long time. Was she also Christian? No, no, she wasn't. So I met her at like a, where did I meet her? At like a art gallery? Yeah, so it was weird. She was lovely. I liked her. And then she told me that she wanted a bird, a really expensive bird, like a $20,000 bird. And I said, you've got to be crazy. We, we, we got to talk through this because I can't, <laughs> I can't justify buying a bird as opposed to putting a deposit on a house. <laughs> That doesn't make sense to me. Um, and so, yeah, we, yeah, we had a, a, yeah, a bit of a chat about our directions in life and what we wanted to see in the future. And that's pretty deep for you know a twenty-one-year-old kind of talking about the future of of a relationship. But yeah, we nutted that out and went, "Yep, this isn't going to work very well." You like birds too much. I don't like them enough. That's what it came down to. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And you were with her for about eight months? Yeah. Yeah. So that was, yeah, pretty fun eight months. So at 21, in being together for eight months, with any other relationship, you know, like... You would have gone to you would have gone all the way like hit a home run um how was your girlfriend in sort of respecting your boundaries oh i suppose neither of us really so both of us in that were in our first relationship and we had no idea what was going on or what what yeah we just didn't have any idea and so i suppose those boundaries are a lot easier to keep when neither of you know what's going on to start with. Uh, I can see it being a lot more challenging dating a girl that's previously had sex and, yeah, and is like, yeah, this is what I want. But in this instance, it wasn't. Yeah, I don't know. We, we never got really that to that point where it's like, we've got to do this. Now I look back and I'm like, I probably should have, I don't know. You probably should have what? <laughs> Made a move. I don't know. I've got no idea. Um, yeah, if I look back and it's like 21, I should have been like right, I should have been like way on top of this thing. Like, I should have been on top of her. What What? What was I thinking? I just don't. I guess if you just, <laughs> if, you, if you didn't feel it, then you didn't feel it. Yeah, well, yeah. Well, yeah, if you just didn't know how it worked, then you just didn't know how it worked. That's probably more likely the case. Like, I don't know how this works. Oh, well, let's not go there. <laughs> I don't know. I just don't, yeah, I don't really know what happened there. Do you think yeah. you felt desire, though? Probably did. Yeah. I think you'd be, yeah, 
But pushing it back wasn't so much a case of, you know, like, oh, I got to remember my faith. It, it was more a case of, like, I don't really know what to do. And yeah, it's so. <laughs> probably more like it, yeah. It wasn't really, you know, it's like, oh, Jesus is watching. I can't do this type of thing. It was, yeah, it was probably more the, I don't know what's going on, <laughs> so I'm just going to keep away um, kind, of, kind of situation. Um, I don't know what it'd be like now if I was in the same situation. It'd probably be a lot different and a lot, um, yeah, a lot harder, I suppose, to keep those values in play. Yeah, so if I was in another eight-month relationship, I can definitely see a whole different level of conversation going on in my head around that particular topic. Yeah, mm. um, but you know future Korsky can deal with that. Right now, I don't have to think about it, so I don't, yeah. I don't go out partying, I don't, you know, so I don't meet enough people to worry about drunkenly going and doing something I regret or whatever, I don't know. Is it something that you would potentially feel insecure about, though, if you were to... Um date a girl who had had sex before and you're coming into that relationship not having had that experience no I don't, I don't think so um, it'd be just the same way that I approach everything else in life um, yeah it's like oh sweet you've done this before like what do I do this will be awesome like you know um, it's kind of the same way that I approach everything else in life. It's like, yeah, right, I've never done this, but you have, show me how to do it, and we'll, you know, we'll get this done. All right, let's smash it out. Um, I reckon that'll be pretty cool, yeah. That'll be a definite head start <laughs> to have someone that knows what's going on, yeah. What I do, what I do, da da do, da da do. Love, Canberra is written and produced by me, Ivana Ho. Theme music is courtesy of Proletar. The interstitial music is by Poddington Bear and Will Bangs. If you like the show, don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss a single episode. Next time on Love, Canberra. Probably the relationship would be most similar to a a relationship with an uncle because I'm not one of the full-time parents. The other way of considering it is sort of as a divorced dad. And that's it for now on Love, Canberra. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.